0: Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive.
2: Hi, welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good, I'm a senior writer at Wired. And this week we have a very special episode to share with you. It's a podcast from our friends at the New Yorker Radio Hour, titled, It's Far Too Late to Stop Artificial Intelligence. In this episode, Joshua Rothman talks to Jeffrey Hinton, a pioneer in artificial intelligence, about the future of AI. And this episode is especially timely because one of the most important AI companies of the modern era, OpenAI is going through a major corporate shakeup right now, like nothing we've ever really seen before in technology companies. So as a quick intro to this episode, I've asked my Wired colleague Tom Simonite to join me in studio. Tom is the senior editor of our business desk. He himself has covered artificial intelligence for years at Wired. And uh, right now you are basically running all of the trains of all of our AI, open AI coverage here at Wired. Tom, thank you so much for joining me in studio. How are you holding up?
3: Thanks, Lauren. We're running a slightly chaotic rail yard here at Wired, but I think um, managing to keep up with the news even as it changes seemingly every 30 seconds
2: what exactly has been going on at OpenAI? And how did the company end up in this position?
3: So OpenAI, that's the company behind ChatGPT, is very unusual because it has a board of directors with a legal duty not to maximizing profits, but to keep humanity safe from future super intelligent AI. That's the board's job. And last Friday, they decided that the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, had to go. Uh, We don't know exactly why. They said that He wasn't being uh, fully honest with them, and that was hindering their ability to carry out their mission of of safeguarding us all from AI. Since then, things have been really quite chaotic. Altman was one of the most famous and influential people in Silicon Valley of the last twelve months, and he's suddenly out. Everyone's wondering what's going on. He's been trying to negotiate a return to the company, but without success so far. Most of the employees at OpenAI have said they're willing to quit and follow him out the door if he doesn't come back. And Microsoft has said that if he doesn't get back in there, he can come and work for them instead. It's changing very quickly. And I honestly couldn't guess where it's going to end up.
2: We're also recording this on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. So by the time you hear this on Thursday of this week, the news may have changed. So to be clear, Jeffrey Hinton, who you're about to hear from in the New Yorker podcast, he's not directly affiliated with OpenAI. He doesn't work there, but he is seen as the godfather of AI. And his work is extremely relevant to what we're talking about. So give a quick background for Jeffrey Hinton.
3: Jeff Hinton is one of a handful of people whose work really made possible the flourishing of machine learning and AI into every app and gadget we've seen over the past 10 years. And his work has also been foundational to ChatGPT and this flourishing of so-called generative AI over the past 12 months.
2: And we should note that one of Hinton's protégés was Ilya Suskiver, who is on the board of OpenAI. He's a co-founder and he's one of the key players who was responsible for the ousting of Sam Altman last week. And as I understand it, there are at least a couple of different groups of people here who fall on different sides of the AI equation. They Some believe that it's doom and gloom and others believe it's going to be helpful to humanity and that we should unleash it to the world.
3: And that's one of the founding beliefs of OpenAI. The company was supposed to be the benevolent steward of future AI technology. Since ChatGPT came out, Hinton has come more over to that way of thinking about being worried about the future of AI. That We need to be really careful with AI technology because it could evade human control and perhaps become very dangerous.
2: And we're about to hear a lot more from Jeffrey Hinton himself, courtesy of our friends at the New Yorker Radio Hour. Thanks so much for that background, Tom. Enjoy the show. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Gadget Lab. So
4: the way the brain works is this. Neurons get inputs, and if they get enough input, they go ping. And the input to a neuron either comes from the senses, but for most neurons, it's input from other neurons. And so neurons receiving these pings from other neurons...
5: Jeffrey Hinton has been thinking about how brains work for a very long time. Hinton is a computer scientist who's been called the godfather of artificial intelligence, AI. For decades, he worked on building computers that would work in a way analogous to the human brain itself. It's an approach known as neural networks. This was an obscure and seemingly fruitless effort for a long while, but eventually it paid off beyond anybody's imagination. That work on neural networks led to incredibly intricate machines like Dolly, which will take your prompts and make you a beautiful picture. Or ChatGPT, which in the last year put AI on everybody's radar. Well, that was a future that nobody expected. These are machines that learn, and perhaps even think.
4: What strength to associate it with each incoming ping um, so that it can decide if it got enough input for it
5: to go ping. And that's all there is. That's all you need to know to know how the brain works. It's very clear that an AI revolution is at hand, here and now, and it's going to reshape our world profoundly. But Geoffrey Hinton, the foremost pioneer of neural networks, has come to have concerns about what AI can do very serious concerns. Joshua Rothman, the New Yorker's ideas editor, recently talked with Hinton in depth and we'll hear some of their conversation today. Josh, the New Yorker has just published an entire issue on artificial intelligence and at the very center of it is your profile of Jeffrey Hinton. Why is he so important? Why is he such a crucial figure? So he's followed the arc of the tech from the very
0: beginning all the way to now. Uh, he's 75. Um, and during a period of time when nobody thought this technology would work, he continued to work at it, and he believed in it, and he's ultimately been proven right. Um, and he's now said that he's scared about the tech that he worked on for his whole life. Um, he, he doesn't regret what he did, But he says we need to be realistic about what's been invented, which is a machine that can think the way we can.
5: Tell me a little bit about what it's like to spend time with Jeffrey Hinton. He's a very emotionally rich as well as intellectually rich personality as you portray him.
0: What was Hinton actually like as a person?
5: A delightful person.
0: He's, he's a little bit from a prior world. He's, he's not a Silicon Valley techno overlord. He's not an um, eccentric um, egomaniac. He's a highly intelligent, um, basically humble person who's worked on this technology for a long time, who got used to being a regular, a regular computer science professor until he was in his 60s when this technology really started to take off. I was pretty intimidated by Jeff. Our first interaction, he, he sort of gave me a quiz on various subjects in philosophy of mind. I think to sort of like confirm that we were gonna be on the same on the same wavelength. And I, I have to say I'm a uh basically a regular Joe. I don't really understand. Like I, I did a Khan Academy course on linear algebra. I did some some things to get, get ready.
5: Are you prepare to do this piece by taking a course online in linear algebra? I did. <laughs>
0: Um, Wow. (laughs) The strangeness of AI is so weird. You know, it combines physics and math and neuroscience and computers. It's it's like a weird discipline and and psychology and and ideas about learning and and all this kind of stuff.
5: What is AI and what are its implications? Because they seem so varied, so vast, to some people so scary and to many, many other people so filled with possibility.
0: So I think the question of what it is is a little bit of a contested one. But the best way for me to understand it um, as a mere mortal is to go back to the beginning. Um, the way this all started was with the idea that, you know, our brains are powered by neurons that are connected in a network. And that, created a, that led to a field called neural networks, uh, a field of computer science in which uh, computer scientists would create um, networks of simulated neurons inside computers. Back in the day, in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you couldn't do that. That was impossible to, to simulate in a computer. But you could build small networks, and they could learn small things. They could learn to recognize handwritten digits, for example, uh, like, like, say, in a zip code on an envelope. Um, but over the last uh, many decades, computers have gotten bigger and bigger. They've gotten literally a billion times faster the number of neurons that can be simulated inside a computer has grown by that scale. Now, um, these neural networks, they're not, they're not yet as complicated as the ones in our heads, but they're really complicated. Um, and they're capable of, um, of doing something that certainly looks from the outside to many people, like reasoning. Um, Jeff Hinton thinks that they're, um, they're understanding just like we do. They're reasoning just like we do. They're, we should take their mental lives seriously, as it were, and we should take their intelligence seriously.
5: You spent quite a lot of time with him at his house on an island in Lake Huron. Let's hear some of your interview.
0: A lot of people struggle to understand how a uh, an AI mind is Similar to or different from a human mind, and they can't decide or they don't know whether to think of uh, today's AIs as you know similar to the computer programs they've used their whole lives, um, or similar to the the people that they converse with. Uh, like, how do you think about that?
4: So I think today's big AI things like ChatGPT four. Um, they're much more similar to people than they are to computer programs. So computers were designed so people could program them. That is, they'd do exactly what you said. And they didn't have things like intuition. But now if you look at what it took to make computers good at chess, um, you had to give computers intuition. A computer had to be able to look at a board and think, oh, that would be a good move, the way a grandmaster does. In fact, they're better than grandmasters at that now. Um, And using neural nets, we could get computers to learn intuitions. Mm. And that's very different from logical reasoning. And when you're an expert in a domain, to begin with you have to do reasoning. A real expert in a domain can just do it intuitively. That's what doctors call clinical experience. They just look at this patient and they know what they've got. And they didn't do a lot of reasoning, it's just obvious to them. But if they're good doctors, occasionally it turns out the patient hasn't got that and they'll use that to revise their intuitions.
0: It sort of seems like when I write, uh, I'm a writer, when I write, um, I'm the one doing it from the top down using my intelligence. It's not like driving a car or riding a bike. It's, it's something I'm choosing to do, and those are my ideas coming out of my uh, ego, as it were. And that's what I think of when I think of like high-level intelligence, is, is like me writing uh, an article or writing an email or something. It doesn't necessarily seem like it's connected to uh, the world of learned intuitive behavior.
4: But if you think when you're writing, suppose you're halfway through a sentence and now you have to choose the next word. So you choose, the, the, there'll be a word that comes to mind because it sort of fits nicely there. How did you decide, why did it come to mind and how did you decide it fitted nicely? You have no idea. You can retrospectively, you can make up a story um, which has probably got some element of truth, but definitely not the whole story. And really what's happening is um, these big pans of neural activity that you've learned are in effect implementing analogies with lots of different stuff you know so that that word seems right there. Just the process of selecting the next word when you're writing, which you might say is just you doing autocomplete, mm-hmm. um, involves more or less everything you ever learned. To do autocomplete properly, you have to understand how the world works. And that's what you're doing. You're just an autocomplete device.
5: Yeah. So, Josh, Hinton is teasing you here. He's saying that your excellent writing is just autocomplete. At least I hope he's teasing because he's wrong. But what are the implications of a machine with intelligence? What could it bring to society in the most positive sense? And what should we fear? So, on the positive side, um, there is ways in which these
0: digital minds are um, different from ours, and uh, yeah, I should say, usefully different from ours. So, if you think about what what ChatGPT is, I think a lot of us have used ChatGPT at this point. Um, one of the striking things is it seems to have ready access to a huge amount of knowledge, like more than we do. Um, it doesn't mean that it's uh, smarter than us exactly. But if you ask it to translate um, something between languages, or to uh, try to solve an equation, or to um, discourse on the history of economics, like it can, you can do that um, because these artificial intelligences are really good at working with huge amounts of data.
5: Is this capacity because a machine at artificial intelligence can have in its head, as it were, all of Google, all of Google Translate? And and then begin to work with it, whereas our minds are, do, do not have that capacity. Is it a capacity question?
0: Yeah, it's partly a capacity question, as I understand it. Um, I mean, I think it's different. Like, you think about what our minds are doing right now, for example. You know, you and, you and I are having this conversation. We're moving towards a deeper level of mutual understanding, all the while where maybe there's some part of our brains thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. You're a very busy man. I'm sure you have a <laughs> lot going on. You're thinking about all that stuff too. Uh, and, and AI also, and this is something that Jeff talked about in my piece that that I thought was fascinating. You know, if I learn something, how do I communicate it to you? I have to write a 10,000 word article for the New Yorker magazine um, right. and you have to read it and, uh, and try to stay awake during it. If 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 an ai <laughs> learns something um, and it wants to communicate it it just downloads the information and it can be uploaded into another ai the first thing that 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 comes to mind is ais have um mastered a level of conversation um and of not just uh responding to what you say but of understanding your intent um there's a piece in the issue that's about this that's about how ais is affecting coders um mm-hmm. one of the ways that that chat gpt is very powerful is that Uh, If you're sufficiently educated about computers and you want to make a computer program and you can instruct uh, ChatGPT in what you want with enough specificity, it can write the code for you. It doesn't mean that every coder is going to be replaced by ChatGPT, but it means that a competent coder uh, with an imagination can accomplish a lot more than she used to be able to. Uh, Maybe she could do the work of five coders. Um, so there's a dynamic where people who can master the technology can get a lot more done. So there's, there's economic consequences that are real. Um, and then there's this sort of bigger fear, a sort of science fictional fear, which, which Hinton shares.
4: There's a whole bunch of risks that concern me. And other people have talked about these much more than I have. I'm a kind of latecomer to worrying about the risks because very recently... I came to the conclusion that these digital intelligences might already be as good as us. They're able to communicate knowledge between one another much better than we can. So that's what made me um, feel I needed to talk out about the existential threat, that these things will get to be smarter than us and, and, we'll and take over.
0: And that's because an AI can just uh, copy its in, its learned knowledge out of itself and put it, give it directly to another AI.
4: So you can have, say, 10,000 different copies of the same knowledge, of the same neural network, each can be looking at different data. And when one copy learns something from one part of the data, it can convey it to all the other copies that haven't seen that data simply by telling them how to update their weights, these synapse strengths inside. Now, you and I can't do that because my brain's wired differently from your brain. And if you told me the synapse strengths in your brain, it wouldn't do me any good.
0: Right. How does that relate to these set of risks that
4: are... Okay, so that relates to the existential threat that these things will become smarter than us, and not just a little bit smarter, but a lot smarter, and will also decide to take over. They'll decide to take control. That's the existential threat. And
0: why would they decide to do that?
4: A very senior official in the European Commission, who I was talking to, said, well, people have made such a mess of things, why wouldn't they?
5: Computer scientist Jeffrey Hinton, he's speaking with The New Yorker's Joshua Rothman, and we will continue in a moment.
1: By AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show.
0: There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal if they can just go to TikTok.
1: This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.
5: One year ago, the future arrived loudly chat gpt launched at the end of last november and it was all anybody could think about for a while suddenly artificial intelligence wasn't just a tool for advanced science research but it was entering all of our lives right down to your kids cheating on their homework our current issue of the new yorker is all about this explosion in artificial intelligence the mind-boggling advances and some of the terrifying possibilities and as part of that project our Ideas Editor Joshua Rothman sat down with the so-called godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton. We'll continue with that conversation now. Now, Hinton has spent a lifetime helping to teach machines how to learn. And now he believes that he's succeeded almost all too well. And he's scared of what may happen when machines are smarter than people and have their own ideas about what to do. Suppose it's a chess-playing computer. Mm -hmm. It wants to
4: win the game. It doesn't have anywhere inside it an ego which thinks, I want to win the game. It's wired up in such a way that it's trying to win. So I think the idea they don't have intentions and they don't have goals is just wrong.
0: Is the idea that people in charge of these systems will give them goals, will start us down this path? I mean, is that what we're envisioning or, or where would the goals come from that would start the whole problem?
4: Okay, there's two sources of worry, and they're very distinct, and have quite different solutions. So one worry is bad actors. You can probably imagine Putin giving an autonomous lethal weapon the goal of killing Ukrainians. And you can probably imagine he wouldn't hesitate. Um, So that's the bad actor scenario. But there's another scenario, which is um, if you want a system to be effective, you need to give it the ability to create its own sub-goals. Like, if you want to um, get back to the US, you're going to need to get to an airport. And so you have a sub-goal, get to an airport. That's a sub-goal. It's it's created in order to achieve a bigger goal. So if you give an AI some goal, um, and you want it to be effective, it's going to work by creating some sub-goals that will allow it to achieve the goal. Now, the problem is, there's a very general sub goal that helps with almost all goals. And the AI will certainly realize this very quickly. The very general goal is get more control. If I just get more control, it's gonna help with everything. And these AIs are gonna realize that. And pretty soon they're gonna realize, well, if these are, if these are my goals, Best thing to do is stop humans interfering and just get on with it and do it a sensible way that these stupid humans don't understand. Whatever goals they do have were given to them by us. And a big question called the alignment problem is can we give them goals such that they do useful things for us and they never ever want to take over? Nobody knows how to do that. It's no use thinking we could air gap them so they can't actually pull levers or press buttons because they could simply convince us to do it because they're much more intelligent than us. And I mean, is that a technical problem?
0: Yes. But, and, and it's also a governance problem.
4: It's a technical problem, a governance problem, but we don't even know how to solve the technical problem even if we could do the governance. Right. Right. Even if we
0: could f- make a law that said you're not allowed to make an AI that can go wrong, we wouldn't know how to do that yet. Exactly imagine that you're not a, uh, central figure in the history of machine learning, but you're just a regular person. Um, and now the world some of the world's biggest companies are saying we've developed this technology. Um, it promises all sorts of benefits that you don't really want. You can drive your car, you can do your job, you can do everything you need to do in your life. We don't know how to control it. Um, it might take your job, and it, or it might take over. It might help solve some scientific problems that you don't care about. I think that regular person might just say, why don't we just unplug it? I mean, why don't we just stop the development? Why don't we just unplug it? We don't we don't need this. You know, we, we don't need, we, we already have intelligences, human beings. We don't need artificial ones.
4: It's not unreasonable to say, we'd be better off without this. It's not worth the risk. Um, just as we might have been better off without fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. We'd have been far more primitive, but it it may not have been worth the risk. Um, But it's not going to happen. Because of the way society is, um, because of the competition between different nations, no one nation could stop it. Um, If you had a very powerful world governance, if the UN really worked, um, possibly something like that could stop it. Although even then, it's just so useful. It has so much opportunity to do good, like in medicine. Um, You just aren't going to stop it. It's also got so much opportunity to give advantage to a nation via autonomous weapons. I mean, the US is already developing autonomous weapons. So yes, that might be a sensible move, but it's far too late.
0: Yeah. So my last question in this vein is, what should we do?
4: I don't know. It would be great if it was like climate change, where someone warning about climate change could say, look, we either have to stop burning carbon or we have to find an effective way to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And if we, one of those two is essential. And you know what the solution looks like. It's just a question of the political will to actually implement something because it's going to be painful. Here it's not like that. I have no advice. All I'm doing is just warning that um, this may well be coming. Smart young people should be thinking hard about, is it possible to prevent it ever wanting to take over? Mm -hmm.
5: Josh, we, we know the names, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Alan Turing. But only very recently have we learned the name Jeffrey Hinton. And we've learned it, A, as somebody who is a great innovator in AI, known very commonly as the godfather of AI, but now also as the apostate of AI. Why has he only emerged now? I mean, it's like the first
0: question you want to ask is, like, it's 2023. So how come in all the decades um, you didn't freak out before? Um, and he told me, um, you know, first, no one thought this would work as quickly as it did. If you rewound the tape to the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, people thought, you know, maybe in 50 years time, um, he, he thought maybe in 100 years time, we would reach the place where we currently are. And so his view was like, why worry about it? <laughs> you know, there's there's plenty of time to try to sort this out down the road. A lot of people who work in uh, AI have mentioned this to me. It's that when you start using ChatGPT or another, the modern AI, the first thing you notice is all the ways it's bad. So the, the first thing you see is the ways the way it's not really human or the mistakes it makes, the things it's not capable of. And your early impressions are, gee, you know, like nice, it's, it's, it's a lot of window dressing. But the more time you spend, the more you get impressed. I mean, it reminds me a little bit, I have two um, small kids, I have a five-year-old son, and... When you spend a lot of time around one kid, you notice every little improvement in in their mind. You're always noticing things they're learning. But if you just visit with friends who have a kid, you don't, you're don't you not impressed. You say, <laughs> that's, that's a little child.
5: Josh, in this issue of the magazine, along with your profile of Jeffrey Hinton, there's a piece by Ale Press about AI and facial identification, which seems extremely fraught Quite dangerous. What's the issue at stake there? Well, the issue is um,
0: an AI um, that provides quote-unquote evidence to the police um, could very well be wrong. Um, and the people who are using these systems might not fully understand how they work or what their limitations are. But once a computer system that, is, um, uh, that appears objective, appears powerful, Um, once it makes a judgment, it can be pretty hard to contravene the judgment. Um, It's a problem in policing. It could be a problem in medicine. Imagine you're a doctor. An AI system delivers a diagnosis. You think it's probably wrong, but are you going to go up against the computer and go on the record and say, um, I disagree with the neural network with billions of artificial neurons running in a huge data center? You, You might not say that. And so the larger question is, as these systems get more useful, as they get more integrated into real-world contexts, and as real people have to start being responsible for them, have to start either disputing what they think or acting on what they think, on what the systems think, um, it's gonna require a level of literacy and of nuance around the technology that we're just really not equipped to have at the moment and that we need to start developing um, if we don't want really negative consequences.
5: Josh, recently I had a conversation on this show with Sam Altman, one of the people behind ChatGPT. And in a very (laughs) almost bland way, he said that AI could put millions and millions of people out of work, which would cause the government to have to come around and start giving us all universal basic income while the machines do the work and the thinking. And and and. he delivered this all in a very, (laughs) I have to say, um, matter of fact way. Um, is this a crucial concern for Jeffrey Hinton?
0: Um, he, um, he's certainly worried about what will the young people of today do for work? How will the world of work be transformed? Well, I guess, can I back up and say one thing broadly is, you know, there's huge disagreement about this. You know, there's, there's no one has a crystal ball. Um, and technologists obviously are in love with what they've made. They, they really see the potential. They live in the future. That's why they do what they do.
5: They're, um, they're in love with it or they stand to make an immense fortune? Yes,
0: and, for and they stand to make immense amounts of money. Um, and mm-hmm. I think Hinton is, is a little different from Altman because he doesn't have any real financial skin in the game. He's not a businessman. He's an um, academic researcher fundamentally, although he worked for Google for,
5: for a period um, and, and walked away, as I recall, with tens of millions of dollars, no? Yeah, he
0: sold a company to Google in the early days of the current AI boom for $44 million. But it is something, to, to, the job loss is something that that Hinton is very worried about. Um, but I think he's more worried about, uh, I, I guess you could just say chaos. His view is the technology is out there, bad people will learn how to use it. And the next few, uh, the, the next period of history will will be destabilized by this technology, and there isn't an obvious way to solve the problem. Isn't
5: that a little easy? I, we've we've been through this now with the internet. Arguably, uh,
0: he didn't he didn't say this to me, but this is an argument many people make. Um, that the best path to understanding and controlling AI is simply to keep working on it. That sounds a little fatalistic. Yeah, I think he's. I think the word he would use is uh, stoic. He thinks he's. I think he. I think he sees his position as a realist one. Um, And he thinks that these are problems that aren't going to be worked out through um, people sitting around and talking about them. Um, They're problems that are going to have to be worked out through the actual development of the technology. Um, And a lot of people say say one thing and do another thing. So it's kind of like they say, um, the technology can't be stopped. um, And then at the same time, they say, let's sign a letter proposing that we stop it for 6 months. Mm-hmm. Um there's a sort of um wanting to have it both ways. Um and and I don't I don't mean this as a to say that they're being cynical. I think these are just two impulses when you look at a technology like this. One impulse is to You're say You're talking
5: about people like Sam Altman yeah, to be clear. Yeah, w- yep.
0: w- w- one impulse is to say, you know, we we can control this and the other is to say, you know, what do we mean by we? There's endless researchers around the world this technology is is available, it's visible. Hinton's view it's, it, it's alarming. It freaked me out personally. Uh, it also struck me as, as at least consistent. <laughs> um, and I think if you look at the history of what happened uh, with, with, say, nuclear weapons, um, we do now have a regulatory regime uh, around them. But that took a while to build. Um,
5: and bad things had to happen first. Um, yeah, and you also have a, a Russian leader who, if he wants to, can threaten to use them in Ukraine. Right. So we've never really
0: solved that problem.
5: Do the benefits of AI outweigh the existential threat to humanity as, as Hinton himself has posted.
0: Before I wrote this piece, I think I, I had an idea of what AI was, um, which was that it was just statistics. It was just number crunching. Um, And learning more about the history of the field and learning more about the innovations that Hinton helped create and that other people helped create. I feel like this technology is incredible. Um, I, I guess my overall feeling is um, people are really smart. <laughs> if we can build it, we can hopefully control it in some way. I, I left the piece even more impressed by by, by what AI can do, by, by what it really does. Um, I think it's worth it.
4: I think some, some
0: critics of AI or skeptics of AI feel that the... Um, That the endeavour is somehow anti-human, anti-human, like saying that what the AI does and what we do is the same, for example, is sort of to diminish uh, what the mind does, the human mind.
4: Right. If you want to be mystical about it and think that humans have some mystical special property that a machine could never have, obviously it does diminish that. I don't believe humans have mystical properties that machines couldn't have. I believe we're just wonderful and very complicated machines I shouldn't even use the word just. We're wonderful and very complicated machines. And trying to understand how these machines work gives us much more insight into what we are. It tells us about our true nature. I think this is giving us enormous insight into the kinds of machines we are. And it's clearly a huge revolution. I mean, the Industrial Revolution was when we could replace physical labor with machine labor. And now we can replace intellectual labor with machine labor. And it's a revolution of at least the same scale.
0: Do you think we'll have to think differently about what's valuable about ourselves and what what makes us unique?
4: That question has an assumption in it, which is what makes us unique. Maybe we're not.
5: You can read Joshua Rothman's profile of Jeffrey Hinton in The New Yorker. And you can find my earlier conversation with Sam Altman of the company that runs ChatGPT at newyorkerradio.org.
2: Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination.
1: Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do.
2: It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them.
4: We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind
2: it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machine satellite
4: engine ignition. Click here and
2: lift off. Click here every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth: no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule.